Hey, guys, don't forget to check out the Street Cop Training Conference 2023, April 23rd through the 28th, Nashville, Tennessee, the Gaylord at Opry. What a center. What a place. We have amazing speakers, amazing training, five of the most impactful days of your career. Check it out at streetcop.com. You do not want to miss out. There is a room code available for a discounted room. Sign up now at streetcop.com. How are you, Dennis? I'm good. How's everything, Ralph? How's every? How's life? Life is good. Keeping busy. You know me. Always you don't doing age. something. What's that? You don't age. I feel like I do. <laughs> I think most people would, would want to look like you, and they're your age. That's for sure. Thanks, then. Uh, what what stories are we going to do today? Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I got a couple of them. Which story do you want to give us today? Uh, I can tell you about one that was off duty. Um, let's see. You know, we used to, uh, when we made gun arrests and narcotics arrests, we used to hold the, we vouch for the stuff, but we'd also bring it home and bring it down to the lab or the ballistic sections uh, when we had a chance, either working or off duty. So one time uh, I had some stuff in the house that had to go down to ballistics. I had a couple of guns, right? So it was, uh, I think it was a Sunday and uh, I called this girl I knew and I took it down, I met her, and I took it down to ballistics with me. And uh, she was a good looking girl, and the guys wanted to show off a little, and they were showing her guns from like the 20s and 30s, and machine guns that were seized that they keep on uh, like display. And they used to fire into a, an oblate, oblong uh, shaped glass water tank, and the mm-hmm. bullet would slow down in the water. There was also times they fired into cotton, and it would wrap around, the bullet would stop, and that's how they do uh, ballistics tests back then. And this was like, I'm talking about 45 years ago, almost 50 years ago, right? So anyway, uh, they fired some guns, they tested my guns, they did the reports, they were operable, and they were showing off and they were firing things. And then we left there, and we were going back uh, to the Bronx from Manhattan where the ballistic section was located in the police academy. At that time, it was on 20th Street in Manhattan. So we were driving up the East River Drive, and I don't know if any of you people know of Manhattan. The East River Drive always floods out, even to this day. And it was a heavy rain, and we had to get off the drive and go up heading north on First Avenue. And I, it was pouring out, and we stopped for a light at 101st, 105th Street and First Avenue. And all of a sudden, I hear a couple of shots. And all of a sudden, two bodies fall on the hood of my car. Whoa. And this one guy is shooting with the other guy. And the other guy is stabbing him. Right? So I jump out of the car. And I, I, I break them up. And actually, one falls dead right there. Wow. And the other one is I disarm them. And I disarm both of them. But they're both like wounded from each other. One shot, one stab multiple times, right? So one, I, um, you know, people hear the shots and I guess they called 911 because in those days we didn't have cell phones. There were no beepers even invented then. And I certainly didn't have a radio with me or anything. I was off duty, right? So people called in and squad cars start responding. And uh, one guy is taken to the hospital and the other guy's dead at the scene. Right. So I have to go to the hospital with the one who's alive. Right. 
and he wound up dying. So it was a, I mean, an off-duty double homicide, right? And it winds up when we get these guys' rap sheets, believe it or not, these two guys were fighting with each other for 15 years. They were shooting and stabbing each other over the same woman. You, know, you can't make up these stories, right? It's incredible. So when you were driving back, were you in a, in a police car? You were in your own car? No, no. I was in my own private auto with this girl who I was actually seeing on the side of my regular girlfriend. So at the time, I'm in the hospital. Now, I know from experience that this is going to be a newsworthy case, right? And I know the press is responding. So I called my brother at the time, and he came down and picked up the girl because I didn't want the press seeing who this girl is, and then put her name or her picture in the paper, because I was actually dating someone else at the time. Oh, so I had to get her out of there before the press came. And then the press did show up, but my brother got her out in time. We had her separated enough. And, uh, you know, I did a little uh, you know, press conference there. And did it was, did uh, she know you have a girl? You had a girlfriend? Who, my girl? No. The, well, the girl you're with? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She knew. She was very cooperative. <laughs> <laughs> In the middle of this whole fiasco, you know, meanwhile, duty captains are responding, you know, detectives. I was a, a police officer at the time. I was in an anti-crime unit. I had experience by then, you know, but, you know, this was uh, an out of the ordinary column when you get a, uh, an attempted murder and a murder. And then the other guy died later anyway. But it was I mean, the back. The backstory was incredible that they've been shooting and stabbing each other for 15 years. This has been going on. I got in on the tail end, you know. I would say the tail end of everything. <laughs> of everything. There was no more tail end. That was it. That was it. I guess uh, the woman was rid of both of them at the same time. What did that girl say when she witnessed something so horrific? Well, she was a little in shock. She, she, I told her not to get out of the car. But uh, she's been with me on some other collars, too, believe it or not. <laughs> Different <laughs> you know, time, right? I, I, this is just one of my 105 off-duty arrests. So I've made several off-duty arrests with other girls during my uh, career. Tell me about some of those, besides the one where you punched a guy in the beach. I know that one. Okay. Um, I was with another girl, right? We were down, in the, we, I was off-duty, and I was on my motorcycle, and I was down in Manhattan in uh, the village. We went walking around. It was a beautiful night. We were out on a date, and... <laughs> Uh, we were supposed to meet my brother and his girl out in uh, Queens in a place called Connecting Highways. And it was where people raced their cars and stuff. Uh, it was very well known in the six, late 60s and the early 70s. And uh, it eventually got shut down. Police were trying to close it for years until they figured out, call the fire department to hose down the streets so no one could race. Right. So I was on the way out there. We were coming up the East River Drive again, believe it or not. And we pulled over because we were running quite early. So we pulled over into one of those emergency parking areas and we climbed over a little fence and sat on a bench on the East River. And all of a sudden I see these guys, there's uh, two guys and they start approaching us. I had this gut feeling already. And I told this girl, I said, listen, when they, if anything, if you see me pull out my gun, just hit the floor, right? And I had, the, at that time, I was wearing a belly band, which um, was pretty comfortable for a 38 when you're riding the motorcycle, right? So uh, these guys walk up to us, and they sort of just like mill around a little behind us or to our side. 
and I got my hand on my gun already. And she's this girl, you know, she's been with me before, and she was on some other off-duty calls. And I told her, just hit the floor right away, right? So they looked us over. And at the time I had a beard, I was pretty muscular. I was wearing a tank top or a muscle shirt, and I had jeans and motorcycle belt boots on, and I was pretty well built, and I'm all tattooed, you know. So they're looking me over and they walk away. But I keep an eye on them and I see them approach. There was a walkway. If you're heading north, you'd go up the walkway about, I don't know, about 50 feet long. And then you would go to your left and you would over. It's an overpass walkway over the highway of the East River Drive, which would put you out on 78th Street. So I watched them and they approach these three people at the bottom of this walkway. And I see them engage in some conversation. Uh, I can't hear, I'm too far away to hear what they say, but I'm watching. So I tell the girl, I'm gonna go over and see what these guys said to them. And as I'm approaching, walking that way, I see them go up the ramp, which is you know going up in height on an angle so they could go over the crossway. And there's two people up there. So uh, I see them engage in them just as I'm approaching the bottom of this walkway. And I asked these people, I said, I'm a police officer, what those guys say to me? And uh, they say, they almost start crying and in tears and say, they just robbed us at gunpoint. So now I run up the ramp and I start to scream police and they leave the two people at the top of the ramp. And I say, what'd they say to you? And they said, they just robbed us at gunpoint. So now they're in the middle of this ramp going, the, the crossover heading to 78th Street over the East River Drive. And I start screaming, police stop. And it's only about maybe four feet wide, four, four and a half feet wide. So there's nowhere to take cover. And the guy turns and starts firing at me. Wow. Right? So I start firing at him. And I, I, the two of them are there. I think I hit one. I'm not 100% sure. But what happens is they run down the ramp and I'm chasing them. And because I saw the guy flinch, but I'm not sure if I hit him. But they run down the ramp now, and there's a waiting car with another guy in it. They jump in the car, and I'm chasing the car up 78th Street until it hits like York Avenue, I think it is, the first uh, north-south street. And they get stuck in a light, and I try to get up there, and the light changes, and they make a right turn heading north. Now there's cars stopped that are heading north. And there's a cab there. I jump into the cab and I'm all sweaty up, all tattooed with my gun out. And I'm trying to scream to the guy, I'm a cop, chase that car. But he thinks I'm robbing him, right? He sees what I look at. In those years, they didn't have partitions or nothing. And they kept the money in a, like a cigar box on the front seat. And the guy thinks I'm robbing him and he starts screaming, don't shoot, don't shoot. And he throws the money at me. You know, it's a whole box of bills and change. And I'm trying to identify myself and they get away, right? So now my motorcycle is still back on in this uh, emergency area, but now police are responding because the girl I was with got to a phone booth because there was still no cell phones back then. And she calls in a description of me and tells them, uh, you know, there's been robberies and shootings and stuff. Uh, she says, I'm her boyfriend's off duty and describes me. So the police come, I get in the police car. We wind up going to the precinct. It was the, I think it was the 19th precinct and in Manhattan. And the 
duty captain is there, and the captain of the precinct, commanding officer. They start interviewing him. I'm telling this story. And, uh, you know, they think I'm a little out of my mind, you know. And the duty captain, before the duty captain comes in, the EXO goes, uh, have you ever been in a shooting by, before? And I, by this time, I've been in about 10 of them. I said, I've been in about nine or 10. And he, like, flips out, right? He says, oh, I'm waiting for the duty captain. And they come. And I, I go through this whole thing for, like, almost an hour and a half. And now I'm leaving. And, you know, they don't even know what to do with it. They're making reports and notifying people. And I'm leaving, trying to get my motorcycle. And all of, and there's no witnesses or no complainants. Now, when I'm leaving the precinct, the people start walking in. They, oh, that's the guy that the, the guy, that's the cop that the guy shot at. So now we had to start all over again. But now I had complainants and witnesses. And it all worked its way out. So that was another uh, off-duty incident. Were those station commanders? I mean, those are some old school dudes. Were they get on the forties? Oh. What they had? What? What were they? They got on. They got in like the. They got on in like the forties, right? Um. No, this was the seventies. A lot of them got on. See, like, those guys fifties. Fifties. Yeah, because in those years, uh, offices and bosses. I mean, the whole job. No one got out at twenty like they do today. In those years, everybody did 30, 30 to 40 years. You know, when you were a cop, that was your whole life. Like today, officers go in the academy. They know their retirement date, and they um, they know when they're getting out, and they have other jobs or other uh, careers lined up. You know, today's officers, are, I would say, are much smarter and have uh, different outlooks on the job. And the job, it's a different atmosphere altogether. But in my years... Guys stayed on those amount of time. It was a whole year life. Most guys, most guys in New York City were forced out on uh, age because you weren't allowed to hit 63. Guys came on in their 20s. It was a, it was a, when they said a career, it was your whole life. Mm. You know, it was, uh, they used to kid you and say, you're a rookie the first 20 years because everybody <laughs> stayed on, you know. Today, if you got over 10 years, you know, you're a senior guy, you know, because you're, you're over halfway. But guys get out at 20. They believe it today they even have options of vesting out uh, in anywhere from five to 20 years, you know, with different options on pension. They're very different. I mean, when you became a cop, you were that was it. You were a cop forever. Like, you know, you didn't you never thought about getting out. What was their like, were these guys good to you, these captains and XO? Were they were they just being well, dicks? My debt, my well, they weren't being dicks, but they were. They didn't know what they were dealing with, you know, when you're out of your command. Like in the Bronx, most of the CEOs and especially my bosses, they knew me and knew, knew of me and knew uh, how I operated and what I did. I had my reputation. But in Manhattan, even though it's the same job, it's like a different department almost when you're in different boroughs. Different boroughs operated different ways. And even though it was the same job, there were different rules, you know. Manhattan is very high profile, and uh, especially in the 19th, where that incident occurred. That's a, you know, very big tourist in the ritzy area. Um, you know, so it was different. They didn't know me, put it that way. They just got some off-duty cop, you know, muscular, tattooed guy running around with a smoking gun. So they didn't know um, who I was. Did they did did you feel like you were being respected by them or you felt like they were talking down to you? Actually, neither. I think they were just a little astounded, you know. 
they didn't know what they had, you know? <laughs> you know, you got this guy off duty and you're talking about a shooting, you know, and, and I didn't have any witnesses or except for my girlfriend who didn't really know much at the time, but I didn't have the uh, complainants. I didn't have the robbery victims, any witnesses. So it was a little, you know, I, I can understand where they're coming from. They weren't talking down to me. They were just uh, a little shaky on how to handle it, I guess. Did they not, did they not deal with shootings a lot? Um, I'd say in the 19th, no, not so much. No, in the 19th and those years, no. It was pretty rare, even on duty. You know, this wasn't like a ghetto precinct, like in Brooklyn or the Bronx. You know, the Brooklyn mm-hmm. and the Bronx were, you know, tough areas to work compared to, not that there weren't tough areas in Manhattan. The upper Manhattan further up is tough when you get to Harlem. But in the Midtown, in those years, was very different. You mm-hmm. know, the biggest thing they really dealt with in those years probably were assaults in clubs at night. Midtown was pretty uh, tame in those years. Nothing like the Bronx. Yeah, Bronx was crazy, right? Yeah, especially the area. I was in the South Bronx. That was known as Fort Apache. And it had a reputation, you know, from the movie and from, uh, you know, people that went up to the Bronx always got robbed or assaulted, you know, tourist stuff. It it was a a rough area in the 70s. You ever have a time where you were getting involved in something and you were nervous at all? No, not really. You know, I always felt I was... I always stayed combat ready and I was looking for trouble and always ready for it. You know, a lot of times uh, I went out on patrol myself. If my partner was in court or was out sick or took off for vacation, I would go out on my own. And if I thought I was getting into something, I'd call for backup. And a lot of times I took action on my own. That's another story I was going to tell you now. I was driving around. And what I do is that being a detective, if I want to go out, I would just say I'm going out on one of my cases and I would log in the book going out on case number so-and-so to interview witnesses and uh, complainants. And then I would do my patrol thing on my own, you know, and if I see something, I'd get involved. And I saw this car that looked like a a police car, like an unmarked car. So I started following them, you know, and I I thought it might be police. And I see these two guys get out and I noticed right away one guy had a bulletproof vest, right? And I see them go into a store. Now I see him with a gun. I see the gun. So now I'm laying back and I'm saying to myself, it must be two detectives or something, but they, they didn't look right. For some reason, I had a gut feeling, but they had like, like looked like an unmarked police car for those years, you know? And they went into a numbers joint and they came out with no arrest, nothing. And it just, I don't know what it was, you know, sixth sense, a gut feeling, uh, just my intuition. But I decided to check these guys out. So they start to drive away, right? And I, I tap on the horn, on the siren, and I pull them over. So the first guy gets out of the car who's wearing the bulletproof vest, right? And I say, uh, I make like I don't know who they are. Like, if they, I, I don't know if I'm thinking they're cops. And I say... Uh, let me see your license and registration, expecting the guy to say right away, we're police officers, you know. The guy doesn't say nothing. And I start to frisk him because he doesn't say nothing. And there's no gun on him. Now the other guy gets out of the car, and I see the gun on him. So I grab him. I run over to the other side, and I keep my gun out. Now I place him under arrest, and I disarm him with a 9 millimeter. 
but this is the and I charge him. I lock up both of them. So I cuff the guy. I order the other guy over. I cuff them together, and I call for backup. Now I'm placing them both under arrest for the same gun, because first time I saw the guy with the gun with the bulletproof vest. Now the other guy passed it to him in the car, thinking I wasn't going to toss the passenger, but the passenger got out and I noticed the bulge, so I got him. So I made uh, two collars for bulletproof vest in a. Uh, which wasn't really a charge at the time, but I put it in the report that that's what made me go over and I saw the gun. Then I got them both for guns. Why do you have a bulletproof vest on? Because they were acting like cops. I think the bottom line, I couldn't get anyone to say anything, but I went back to where they went in, which was a numbers place. And obviously they're not going to say none, but they either shook them down or robbed them. Wow. They were playing cop, but I couldn't get them with the charge of them. But what I did was I notified the impersonation unit and internal affairs if they had any jobs where these two guys, that if they fit the description or the car or the plate number of guys that were shaken down or robbing uh, other illegal uh, activities. Now, I don't know how far I went with internal affairs or there was a unit that investigated. It was part of internal affairs called FIAU, Field Internal Affairs, where they uh, investigate cases where People make reports of cops robbing them or something, and it's really not cops. You got a lot of cop impersonators out there. So I was big on that too. You know, if guys, I made some more, I made an off duty uh, arrest in my gym, which wasn't even in New York at the time. It was in Pelham, New York. And there was a guy up there. This guy was uh, always bragging that he was a cop and stuff. So I questioned a couple of guys in my gym that I knew. And they said, Yeah, well, as far as we know, this guy is a cop and stuff. So I waited for this guy, you know, outside. And he wound up, and I, I grabbed him outside of the gym, and he uh, identified myself. And I said, uh, you have some ID? And so he showed me. He, I actually, what I did was in the gym, I started talking to him. And I asked him his tax number, and he gave me a four-digit tax number, which I know in New York, the tax numbers are all six digits. So I got him outside. I, I said, oh, well, that's cool. Okay. I waited for him outside, and I grabbed him, and he had a gun on him. Whoa. Uh, I placed him under arrest for possession of a gun and impersonating an officer. Wow. And it's stuck, right? You know, these... I used to have these gut feelings. or I knew the tax numbers. If someone gave me, even if he gave me a six-digit number, if he told, in those years, I was able to relate what month and year you came on just about. You know, so if the guy said, uh, gave me a, a six-digit number and told me he came on 10 years ago, but I know the number was, you know, from four years ago, you know, I would investigate it further and make an arrest. You know, there was a lot of impersonators and that was what give cops and detectives bad names, you know, when they impersonate you and do criminal stuff. When you were in some of these gun battles, did you ever like, how close were you to being shot? Besides the one time where you were holding a flashlight out and the guy shot, how close did you hear bullets whizzing past your ears or anything like that? Numerous times, you know, uh, uh, I was in one of my gun battles was uh, in 1972. Uh, actually, it was it was uh, I shot someone. I shot someone before that, and I was in a couple of one or two shootings before. But I never killed anybody. What happened was uh, I wasn't with my regular partner. You might have heard this story somewhere along the line, but uh, I was in court that day, and I got out early. I went back to the command, and. Uh, the boss paired me up with another officer in our unit. 
but he came back from court. He was in our unit, but he wasn't my direct partner. So we went out on patrol and uh, around two hours later, we get a, a call of a burglary in progress. Now, normally we don't take those runs because we're anti-crime. We're supposed to do pickup work and you know follow suspicious people and uh, do in, uh, our own investigations. But we always backed up uh, uh, uniform officers in our command. So we took this as a, a backup to the unit that picked it up. But we happened to get there first. I guess we were closer. And the call changed from a burglary in progress to a girl screaming for a, screaming for help or a girl screaming. So now we know we can't wait for the unit that picked it up and we back them up. We had to go in immediately. And it was a top floor job. And we went up there. And when we got up there, we heard the girl screaming ourselves. And uh, uh, the door was broken into. So we... Uh, we went in and it was two o'clock in the afternoon and it was very dark in this apartment. Uh, they had sheets and shades and bedspreads all over the windows. It was like a crack den or something. It was pitch black. And we hear screams from the back. So we proceeded there. And as we're going there, someone jumped out. It was pitch black and we only saw a muzzle flash, but he was only about three feet away from us. And he opened fire on both of us. I saw the muzzle fire, I heard the bang and the bullets, I could hear whizzing, and he shot my partner. We were standing side by side in the hallway, and he shot my partner uh, five direct hits when my partner hit. The bullets were ricochet, so I could hear them. And he took two uh, ricochet hits, one in his back and one in his arm. And uh, I shot the perpetrator, and uh, he didn't go down immediately. My partner unloaded his gun as it was going down too. But he ran into me. I had to grab him and I pressed my gun against him and shot him in the heart and killed him right there. But um, you can, it's like a strobe effect with the uh, well, it was pitch black and we're all firing, like 18 rounds went off. Wow. In this little hallway. And thank God I wasn't hit. Then I had a rush. Uh, I picked up my partner's radio, called for assistance, but officers were responding anyway to the burglary. So they were there in seconds. And we carried my partner down rushed him to the hospital in a radio car and uh, it saved his life, not waiting for an ambulance and uh, taking immediate action. But the officers carrying him down the stairs, get him into a radio car and rushed him to the hospital. So what was the original job? What that guy break into the apartment for? Was he trying well, to rob a drug dealer? The original job was a burglary in progress, but it escalated to uh, a girl screaming for help in the burglary. So now you have, it's more like uh, the word wasn't invented then, but it would be, uh, where now would be home invasion. So, but it wound up that it was his girlfriend that he was fighting with. And he was married and lived across the street with his wife. What happened was the fight escalated where the girls threatened to tell his wife. So he started, you know, beating the shit out of her. Wow. So he broke into the apartment, assaulted her, and that's how the run uh, emanated from. This girl, you know, after she's the victim of this crime, what, what, I mean, you guys left, you're running your, your guy to the hospital, but. Well, I didn't get... leave the scene. I stayed at the scene because uh, I had a answer for what actions I took and what occurred. So, uh, uh, you know, I went to the hospital later, but uh, I had to stay on the scene and explain to bosses and detectives that were arriving, you know, what occurred. You can't leave the, you know, unless you're uh injured and have to be rushed to a hospital you can't leave the scene of a shooting like that you know anytime you use your weapon 
you got to account for it. What did the bosses say when they pulled up? You know, was it the same bosses all the time, or you know, were they were they good with uh, you? Yeah, you know, my my command bosses, and you know, the PBA shows up. You know, representatives. Uh, you know, I was told at the time that I was going to be promoted to detective. You're going to get the Medal of Honor and all this kind of stuff, but none of that occurred uh, because we because of the fact, uh, believe it or not, we got bad press out of that. The press ran it on the front page, and they said a tragic error because the guy had it was his girlfriend. You know that uh, they made it that he lived there and across the street. And they didn't report that side that they lived across the street with a wife. You know, we got, uh, we didn't get uh, what they call medal day. We wound up getting medals. The highest department office was honorable mention. But if you get honorable mention, then you're in the pool for getting uh, one of the three higher medals. And we didn't go further than that because of the publicity. Did that frustrate you at all? Um, not, not, we got other awards at the time for it. But I was more glad that I was alive and that my partner was alive and we survived this incident. You know, the most important thing was making sure my partner survived it. Ralph, you ever you ever have a dead day at work? Did you ever have a day you go and nothing happened? Uh, not really. You know, uh, pretty much we made collars every day. I mean, what we call a dead day was a collar where there was no resisting or, you know, gunplay or fighting. You know, but we pretty much made arrests almost every day. You know, either I took it or my partner, or we assisted other units and we made arrests. Uh, we were in a very, I was always in a very proactive unit that was always on the hunt in the, in the Bronx, in the South Bronx in the 70s. There was always action. Even if it wasn't us, if we assisted, uh, I made uh, thousands of assists helping uniform officers or other plainclothes units or detectives. You know, there was always something going on. It was, it was a crazy time, and we were in the craziest area of those times. It was an exciting job in Korea. Yeah, I mean, how much? I mean, how much fun did you have? Did you ever feel like it was not fun? It was not fun when the, um, either one of me or my partners got hurt. You know, that was you know that slows you down. Or you see, or even when you go to a police funeral. And back in the seventies, I used to go to every funeral, and it was like. Uh, it makes you think for a minute, you know, you, you reflect on the things you do and say, you know, that could have easily just have been me. This guy was active, taking an action and, you know, something went sideways and an officer got killed. You know, that's the only time like you stop and think about things. You know, it's a terrible thing going to an officer's funeral. Yeah, I've been to plenty. It's the worst. You know, I mean, I'm sure every officer has been to them and it, it, it's terrible. You know, here's a guy going out, putting his life on the line for other people, for strangers. And it's the only job, you know, besides the military. People go out and, you know, put their life on the line. And they're doing it daily. And, um, you know, you, you just take a step back from it and reflect when you go to a funeral. And you guys were having a lot of deaths uh, in line of duty deaths back then, Well, right? yeah, the BLA was around. That was the Black Liberation Army. Uh, they were ambushing cops at the time. So a lot of officers were getting killed, not only in New York, but everywhere. But New York was a big department and they took a lot of hits. But the BLA was across the United States. And they're, they're, you know, they, they were uh, an offshoot of the Black Panthers. And actually, they were more violent. So they left the Black Panthers. And we know how violent the Black Panthers were. But this was an offshoot that believed in more violence against cops. 
and the government and, you know, and establishments. Man, were people, you know, during that time on high alert for the BLA? Oh, yeah. Uh, officer, we bought, uh, just to give you an example, our unit, the 4-1 anti-crime, uh, we went out and we bought our own shotguns. We bought 20 of them. There were 20 guys in our unit. We bought 20 shotguns from the local uh, sporting goods store. And we bought our own bulletproof vests, which were very, very heavy. And it was like probably four times or five times what a bulletproof vest is today in weight. And it wasn't flexible. I mean, today they made tremendous strides and department supply the officers with vests. But we bought our own and we uh, drove around with shotguns and other guys drove around with some uh, high powered rifles and stuff. And we did that off duty and on duty. What kind of rifles were guys carrying around back then? Well, they carried all kinds, all kinds of stuff they brought back from uh, Vietnam or stuff that they bought if they were hunters or shooters. Uh, but we carried it around. They weren't really authorized, but nobody said anything because of what was going on. You know, because police officers back then, we only carried 38s. You know, uh, you had like your MP10, which was, uh, you know, your on-duty uh, four, 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 four or six inch barrel, then you had your two inch snub noses or detective specials. So when you were, we used long arms, uh, you know, to back up offices. We carried it in our cars too. I carried a, sometimes a 30 caliber uh, carbine. Oh shit, you ever use it? Uh, not on duty. I fired it at a range. I never had to use it on duty. I, ne I, I never used a shotgun on duty either. I brought it on duty, but I never had to fire it on duty. But it's a very intimidating weapon. When I stepped out of the car with that, and there might be 20 or 30 drug dealers on a corner, I mean, everybody uh, obeyed you immediately. Yeah, I, I, had a breech, I used a breech load shotgun. But I mean, a couple of guys had pump actions. When you rack around, man, nobody did anything. You know, it was a very intimidating weapon. And they knew you guys weren't fucking around back then either, right? No, no, it was no fucking around. It was... Uh, nothing like today. I mean, there was guys that disrespected police officers. I mean, no one ever threw water on a police officer. But I mean, there was guys that mouthed off and there were guys that fought you. But they paid the price, you know. You know, then there was no um, a backlash like there is today because politicians and the public and your bosses uh, all back you up. You know, they wanted bad guys in jail. You know, it's not like today with bail reform restraints on what kind of force you could use. And uh, I mean, I mean, there must be officers turning over in their grave and the stuff they hear today. You know, it's it's really outlandish. You know, I, I find it very hard how police officers could actually do their job. You know, and not only that, they get the court if you do make an arrest and you got guys like Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DEA, and they're just letting guys out every day. We had, I just read uh, yesterday, it was a guy arrested I think he committed three larcenies in one day. He was out, in, out, in, out. And he had like 45 arrests on his uh, record. And there was somebody who had 200 arrests. I mean, these stores are getting murdered today. They're putting places out of business with the theft. I can tell you that they're driving the real estate prices in Connecticut and New Jersey through the roof because everybody's leaving the city. They're leaving everywhere, the whole tri-state area. And I, I tell you, the... Stores that have security are told not to do anything. They're told to call 911 or take a plate number. In Manhattan, they don't use a cause, but uh, uh, security in stores are told to do nothing. 
you know, I know a lot of officers uh, that do it off duty. I know guys that are retired that do it. I know security officers. I mean, the policies of stores, especially the major, major stores, are all told to lay off, not to stop anybody. They it's, it's a crazy policy. And if the people know this and the perpetrators know this, you know, it's a bad policy. They know if they get arrested, they, I don't even know why they resist arrest. They're out in an hour. All it is is a, a bump in the road to them or an inconvenience because no DAs are prosecuting. People are fleeing these cities and just moving out. Totally. They're moving to all kinds of states. And people know this, but uh, I think there's going to be, I, I hope there'll be a change soon. I see this uh, a DA, and I mean, yeah, DA, I think just yesterday was uh, thrown out on a, a revote. Uh, I think it was in California. Was that, was that Los Angeles or San Francisco? They tried it a few months ago and it didn't work. The guy who was letting people out stayed in. But yesterday, I think the guy, there was a turnaround vote for somewhere in, in a major city in California. At some point, you know. Some At some major- point, the people have to take enough. I mean, they, it's how far could they go? It's- I think New York City is up. Uh, they're already up like the record highs of 2021 of homicides. And I think they're up another 46% on top of last year's numbers already. And, and we're coming into the worst time. The summer. summer. The heat, yep. You know, everybody's on the streets. Or, you know, you get the sweltering heat. It's, it's not going to be good. But, you know, we should be thankful. we got men and women that still, still, still do the job, that are willing to do the job. They're still out there doing it. And it's got to be hats off to them, you know. You know, it's crazy because you got people disheartened. You got you're bringing new guys and girls out in the road and you don't have any of these old school guys around or girls around showing these people how to work the streets. So they got to start all over again. Well, they're they're taught a different way in the academy than on the street, you know, but there's like you say, when they get into the street. But, you know, the ones that are really into it, uh, take courses such as yours, street cop training. It's an invaluable course. And I know you get uh, thousands of guys that go there and th- these guys want to learn and you're teaching them the right way. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's a, you're a valuable tool today. We're even subject to criticism because in, I guess, the mind of some people, the police should be doing nothing. I don't know well, how how they justify that, but they think the police. Should they think the jails should be empty and the police should do, be abolished. And, you know they're way off the deep end, but we all know that you got to have a law enforcement. You got to what good are laws have been enforced and who's going to enforce them? But uh, I know guys that personally took your course and they're looking to go back to the next one. Now these are guys that are proactive police officers that learn from your course and want to ta- want to take it again. You know, learn new uh, new classes that you have, but they're they're proactive officers, and it's it's a hard it's very hard to be proactive today. But it, it's it's good to know the laws and the techniques and what you could do and what you can't do and how you could apply uh, what they use. Even in back when I was on the job, you used uh, techniques that you learned uh, to your advantage. You know, you just got to know the law to use it to your advantage. In the wake of all this insanity, what I find comical is the 
hypocrisy from the people who are the naysayers uh, who say that the training, da, 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 whatever they say. But the reality is, is nobody's doing anything except us and another handful of people to try to make these things better. What we can show people is you can still do the job. It's just a different way that the job is done. Exactly. That's what I, I was trying to say in different words. But you, if you know the law, you make it work to your advantage. Oh, I'm telling you, like I, you could do this job just as effectively. And it may sound crazy to say this just as effectively now with your brains more. Right. Yeah, we use did. a lot of we use a lot of brute force. We were taught uh, that the police overpower. Uh, there was no like you have words today a de-escalate. There's things that we never heard of. You know, negotiations. Uh, we never had that. We were taught you go out there and uh, you overpower them. If whatever whatever violence they use, you use more violence. Mm-hmm. It was more of a a, a physical job, and mm-hmm. you laid down the law to them. You know, but policing goes through uh, different periods of uh, different times and uh, different uh, um, uh, approaches apply at different parts of time. And, you know, history has changed. It's a different era now of policing. And we go through different eras over the course of years, too. But we were more of an overpowering force. You were taught to go out there. If someone even raised their hand to uniform, forget it. You know, they get pounded to the ground. You know, it was a physical uh, a job then. There was street justice. That's how I got the name of my book. You know, and we were taught that the, uh, there was a little more ju- uh, justice at the end of a nightstick than there was in the court of a law sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, uh, I'm, I don't have much to say about that because um, <laughs> I have a, uh, you know, I have a reputation and, a, uh, and I'm trying to... Uh, present an image um but well it's 50 years uh removed you know so it, it's a different time in policing history yeah yeah ralph can say it right <laughs> whether or not i agree with it or disagree with it i can't say it well but you ralph know, and i know each other well enough to know that you know I, i'm uh we're cut from the same cloth ralph and i you know so well most police officers are you know they it was more justice than they can meet in a court you and know? did they, did it, you think it ever made them second guess doing some shit knowing that? Well, I think they knew they respected police. Well, no, let's put it this way. They feared the police. I think decent people uh, and law-abiding citizens should have respect for police and criminals should fear the police. And the problem is today, they don't fear the police. You know, but that, that uniform stands for law and order, stands for authority, and it separates us from uh, anarchy and chaos. And that's the thin blue line. And people that break the law, do certain crimes, uh, have to pay the price, either in court or on the street. Well, listen, Ralph, I think uh, I think we've covered a lot for today. We did about an hour, and uh, this was great. And I miss you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Dennis. Yeah. And I hope your uh, audience enjoyed it. And they can read a lot of my stories in the book I wrote, uh, Street Warrior, which is still available on Amazon. And my show, Street Justice, The Bronx, is available on Amazon. It's on demand. It's on Amazon Prime also. And uh, I want to say to all your audience, thanks for uh, uh, being police officers, uh, either past, present, and uh, be safe out there. And uh, I thank you for your service, and I appreciate it. And I'm sure all decent people still do.
And just to let you know, I like to brag to people that I'm your friend. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. I'm proud to say you're my friend because you're doing a great service for the police community by uh, teaching the courses you do. That street cop training is great. And I was there, you know, I was uh, honored by you to be invited to speak at the first one. And it, it was great. It was fantastic. Thank you. I'm honored to be your friend, Dennis. Well, tell the missus I said hello. I will do. And same to your family. And well, uh, thank you, Dennis. I will see you soon. We'll schedule this in. We'll, we'll put another one in soon. Okay, Dennis. Thank you. All right, Ralph. See you, buddy. Take care. Take care.